Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. My name is Andrew Lawton. In for Roy this weekend, living out my always the bridesmaid, never the bride life here. You're a perpetual guest host for the coming three hours and also tomorrow as well. It's good to have you tuned into the program across the country here, folks. If you want to weigh in on anything we talk about on the show today, you can give me a call at 1-800-263-2428. You can also tweet me at Andrew Lawton. That is L-A-W-T-O-N. And you know you're a guest so it's when you have to spell your name to those listening in, by the way. And also, by that same token, you can send me an email to andrew at andrewlawton.ca. Hope you're all having a wonderful weekend so far. We have got a lot of stuff coming up on the program today. I'm going to be chatting in about an hour about the goal of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario to eradicate Sir John A. Macdonald's name. That is the first prime minister of this country from schools and public buildings. We'll talk about that push very shortly. And also we're going to be speaking later on in the program with Christine Douglas-Williams, who is a board member with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and also author of the book The Challenges of Modernizing Islam. Now, the book itself just came out and I think has a lot of themes there that are worthy of discussion. But in particular, I want to speak with Christine about the fact that she may be getting fired by the federal government from her role as a member of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation because the government of the day is facing calls to have her dismissed because they don't like the fact that she writes about Islam. So we'll talk about that with Christine Douglas-Williams later on in the show. And lots of little odds and ends I want to get to today as well, from Mike Duffy suing the federal government to a new study looking at just how much we spend in taxes to everything in between. A lot of great things coming up on the show. And including in about, I don't know, six or seven minutes, I'm going to be speaking with Mark Bray, who's the author of the new book Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, and I had lined up the interview because he has this new book coming out, but the thing that I find interesting is that he was also under fire a couple of days ago for an interview he gave on NBC in which he said that it was actually justifiable for Antifa to use violence to silence fascists or white supremacists or neo-Nazis. So we'll talk about that later on in the program as well. Before I get too deeply into things, though, I want to respond to a story I just saw a little while ago, actually, involving Saskatchewan Senator Denise Batters. Now, I know there are a number of listeners to the show in Saskatchewan, but this is an issue that really, I think, affects all Canadians when we talk about the civility or lack thereof in discourse today. Now, people need to realize the history here. Senator Batters' husband was a former member of Parliament, and he ended his own life. He dealt with mental illness, and he ultimately succumbed to that very illness when he killed himself. I have been there. I've been there. Now, Senator Batter's husband, Dave, died in 2009. I, less than a year later, in 2010, had attempted my own life. And, I mean, spoiler alert, I failed. And it was the greatest failure I've ever experienced, as a matter of fact. But I understand mental illness, and I understand suicide. And I understand the impact that it has on those who are dealing with it. And also by talking to my family and friends, I understand the impact that it has on family members. So she has had to deal not just with a loss, which is challenging enough, but she's had to deal with a loss of something that is very misunderstood and something that is very heavily stigmatized. She's a politician. People don't like politicians. Some people don't like conservative politicians. A lot of people don't like senators. But there's a line you cross when you bring someone's family into the equation here, which is precisely what happened to someone who had tweeted their discontent with Senator Batters this week. And what this person had tweeted was, Denise Batters is a senator only because her husband killed himself and we taxpayers take place of life insurance. And then the person repeated later on, I said earlier, Denise Batters was appointed to Senate after her former MP husband had killed himself, taxpayers taking place of life insurance. 
So we have a few different moving parts here. Number one, diminishing her own worthiness of public office and her own success as a public official. Number two, accusing her job appointment, which took place for a number of reasons under Stephen Harper, as being tantamount with some sort of apology because her husband had died. And thirdly, invoking her late husband's name because of a political objection. Now, she saw these when she was just about to board a flight on her 20th wedding anniversary. On her 20th wedding anniversary. And this is the second time that comments that she received of this nature went viral this summer. She said in an interview with Canadian Press that she's used to personal criticism. It's part of politics, it's part of partisan, but she says invoking the death of her husband crosses a line. And she was going to just ignore it, block them, do whatever politicians do when they face such callous criticism. And she said, I thought, no, they don't get to do this to me. They don't get to do this to me. And, you know, I find that to be such a, a powerful way of thinking because I've had, as someone who has been open about my own struggles with mental illness, I've had people reach out to me on a couple of occasions and say, you know, you shouldn't have a platform because you're mentally ill or, oh, you're crazy. I mean, I am crazy, but that's distinct from, you know, my mental illness struggles. People saying, oh, well, you know, you, you don't have a right to speak out because you're this or you're that. And I have a thick skin because I'm used to it. And I work in a line of work where one has to have a thick skin. And Senator Batters has a thick skin because she works in a line of work where she has to have one as well. But the one point that I would raise about this, for anyone who thinks that they can speak to a politician in that way, you're not just speaking to them. You're not just stigmatizing Dave Batters' suicide. You're stigmatizing the suicide or suicide attempt or mental illness struggles of anyone else who ever sees that comment. And you may think you're just knocking one politician you dislike, which is still indefensible in that way. But what you're actually doing is sending out a warning shot to anyone else that if you dare to go down that road of having to experience a mental illness in your lifetime, you are a subject for mockery and scorn. So if you've ever thought that something like that is fair game for you to criticize, then you are part of the problem. Not just part of the problem of a lack of discourse and civility in politics today, but a part of a problem that goes much deeper when it comes to the way that we engage and interact with those who have mental illness, which, as the name suggests, is an illness in and of itself. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show, but first I want to bring in my guest, Professor Mark Bray. That's coming up next on the other side of the break here. I'm Andrew Lawton, and for Roy today on The Roy Green Show, you're tuned into the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The last show that I did for Roy Green last Sunday, we spoke a great deal about what had been unfolding for the week prior in the wake of Charlottesville. And Charlottesville, I made the point last weekend, was not a one-off. It was certainly, I think, a match to a powder keg that had been assembling for quite some time. But a lot of people who have been focusing on the struggles of anti-fascists in their opposition to fascists, if we boil it down to that simple dichotomy, have been seeing a lot of those dynamics since long before Charlottesville, which was certainly a point at which it became very difficult for anyone to ignore if that was what people were doing. And it certainly catapulted Antifa, short for anti-fascists, to a greater level of public awareness. Now, not public understanding necessarily, but public awareness. Now, Antifa is not an organization per se, but rather a network or a mission. And it's one that we see gaining steam in its opposition to fascism or what it deems to be fascism. And that's the uh, nuance that I do want to tackle here. As we look at this book that's coming out on August 29th, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, written by Professor Mark Bray, who is a visiting scholar at the Gender Research Institute at Dartmouth College. Professor Bray joins me on the line now. Professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks so much. You couldn't have had this scheduled for publication at a better time, could you? Not really. Um, actually, it was originally scheduled to come out in September, but they moved it up, so it's actually out right now. Uh, listeners can order it right now, yeah. So let's talk first off about what Antifa is, in your view, because you don't right. look at it just as this network from the last couple of years. You go all the way back to the resistance to fascism, I mean, going back almost a century. Right, so... 
certainly we can see anti-fascism has a century of history dating back to opposition to Mussolini and Hitler, participation in the international brigade during the Spanish Civil War. Now, for a lot of countries, there was a bit of a divide between the end of the end of World War II and the 70s and 80s. This was less the case in Great Britain, where there was more of a continuity because free speech laws allowed fascists and anti-Semites to organize openly in Britain in a way they could not on continental Europe. So you see the, the continuation almost unbroken of militant anti-fascism from the 20s through to the present. In other countries, it sort of re-emerged more in the 80s in Germany, in the 80s and 90s in North America, with a focus on depriving fascists and white supremacists from a platform to organize and promote their politics. In your view, is there a distinction between those who were anti-fascist in the sense of trying to take down or stop Hitler and Mussolini and those who are disrupting campus speakers in 2017? Well, so obviously the term can be used in different ways. Some historians use the term anti-fascist during the, the 30s and 40s simply to refer to anyone who was against Hitler and Mussolini. I use it to trace the trajectory of militant anti-fascism, of a sort of more socialist, anarchist, communist variant on it, which is the lineage that we see today. Certainly disrupting campus speakers is a bit of a a wrinkle on the traditional anti-fascist model, which focused more on organized white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups. But certainly it's, it's a sort of variation on a similar politics around trying to prevent certain forms of Um, what some uh, liberal groups would call hate speech from becoming normalized and and influencing the public discourse. Are they moral equivalents, though, the Antifa Antifa opponents to Hitler and the Antifa opponents to, you know, an Ann Coulter or a Milo Yiannopoulos? Well, certainly it's not the exact same thing. Um, Anti-fascist politics are against this sort of far right, broadly construed. So obviously um, Milo Yiannopoulos is not the same as Hitler. But we can see that, that you know, Milo's um, transphobia and misogyny and, and xenophobia, there's a lot of reasons why one would be against him. And, of course, there will be disagreement as to how to respond. The anti-fascist argument in this context is that his words both promote far-right organizing and incite violence against transgender and un- undocumented students. When you bring up that idea of xenophobia, transphobia, whatever these sort of phobias or isms are, it actually gets into something I wanted to ask you about. Because in your book, you Mm. really define fascism not just in the way that people conventionally understand it, this, you know, authoritarian political system, but you really describe it more in line with an ideology. I mean, racism, patriarchy, misogyny, transphobia, xenophobia, all of these isms and phobias. Has fascism changed, or is your view that fascism has always been about these things, not just about a system of government? Good question. So fascism is very hard to define both back in the the 20s and 30s and today. And so I think it is worthwhile understanding that, you know, what Mussolini laid out, the way it was interpreted by Hitler and others, is somewhat different from variations on far right today. Um, You know, for example, the Italian fascists were not particularly racist, at least compared to Nazis. Race wasn't a central category for them. Um, But we can see that the, the far-right politics that we see today in Europe and North America have sort of twisted and turned in important ways, which is why anti-fascists don't sort of limit themselves to a textbook view on fascism, but try to combat white supremacy and misogyny, homophobia and transphobia, all these kinds of uh, oppressive uh, belief systems as they're put in organizing throughout their actions. The big problem that I have with the modern manifestation of Antifa is that you can see there is a, a subset of this that believes violence is a legitimate tool. And you go into that in the book, and I and you say it's mm-hmm. a small sliver, but you recognize that it's there. But you also yeah. look at disruption of speeches, disruption of speakers, platform. No platforming is what it's called in, in sort of the mm-hmm. to, to critics as well as to uh, supporters of it here. And the problem is, though, there is such a, a broad interpretation of what constitutes a, a fascist identity or a fascist ideology that if someone is to say, you know, I support no platforming fascists or I support violence against fascists. Well, if you have such a a broad interpretation of what a fascist is from, you know, Hitler on one extreme to on the other side, someone who has a a marginal conservative viewpoint, can you see why there are problems in the way that this disruption can unfold? Well, uh, what's your example of someone being no platform who has a marginal conservative viewpoint? 
Well, not even necessarily marginal, but an Ann Coulter who is not advocating for violence. She's a conservative speaker. She sells a lot of books. She operates within the confines of the law. She's not a, a violent person. So I would put her certainly without one exa- another example as being on that side. Even further to the center, a professor like Jordan Peterson in Toronto who has said that he is not going to use uh, someone's self-identified gender pronoun. His speeches have been disrupted by Antifa. Well, I don't know about Jordan Peterson, so I can't comment either way on that uh, situation. But Ann Coulter certainly is far right of, of center, uh, far, far among the Republican and conservative uh, end of the spectrum. You know, very xenophobic, very anti-immigrant, very Islamophobic. I mean, there's a lot of negative stuff. But I, the point you make is still a germane point, which is at what point is, is no platforming legitimate or not? And really, the politics is what the issue is, and it's a, it's a political question. It's a matter of political disagreement between different factions that plays out in actual politics. Um, you know, for the most part, historically, as we said, no platforming individual speakers is a small part of this and is more of a recent development than it was historically. But, you know, the argument still stands that there's real violence that comes from these presentations, and they view far-right politics as an uh, enemy to be opposed, not just a, an agreement or disagreement to have through rhetoric. And that that's stems from the illiberal politics of anti-fascism being composed primarily of anarchists and socialists who are not beholden to sort of classical liberal ideals. Yeah, and by that same token, Antifa fundamentally rejects the idea of free speech as one of those ideals that is inherently flawed, and you acknowledge that in the book here. But when we talk about the justification of violence, I want to read a a passage from your book here. It's that fascist violence often necessitates self-defense, although anti-fascists challenge conventional interpretations of self-defense grounded in individualistic personal ethics by legitimizing offensive tactics in order to forestall the potential need for literal self-defense down the line, and then you say, uh, afterwards, in other words, anti-fascists don't wait for a fascist, fascist threat to become violent before acting to shut it down physically, if necessary. Mm-hmm. Unquote. How is it Correct. justifiable to Antifa to preemptively ex- in, really espouse self-defense when no violence has happened? Well, the argument is that fascist and white supremacist politics are inherently violent and inherently threatening and if allowed to grow, will definitely target people either on a small scale or quite possibly on a larger scale. And so the question is, if you look historically and you agree, for example, that self-defense methods were legitimate at a certain point as regimes uh, such as those uh, put forward by Hitler and Mussolini were growing, if at some point self-defense was legitimate back then, how bad do things have to get before that becomes okay and the anti-fascist answer is, of course, grounded in their perspective of fascism as a political enemy, not just sort of a difference of opinion. Their argument is that you don't let it take even the first step towards normalizing itself and growing in popularity before you confront it. Most of the time that involves nonviolent tactics, such as calling someone's employer or a venue owner to cancel an event, but sometimes it entails self-defense, as you pointed out understood both in an immediate sense and at times in a preemptive sense, the argument being that letting this grow is much worse than stopping it right in the, in the uh, right away. So. Professor Mark Bray joining me on the line, author of Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook, out available now. Professor Bray, thanks for your time today. Pleasure. All right, all the best to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. True Canadian hero... Senator Mike Duffy, who this week kicked off a lawsuit against the federal government for nearly $8 million. He's filing a lawsuit against the Senate, against the federal government, seeking $6.5 million in general damages, $300,000 for loss of income and benefits, $1 million in punitive damages relating to the treatment that he faced during the Senate expenses scandal, where he was, quite frankly, despite his exoneration in the court, vilified in the court of public opinion. Is that the federal government's responsibility or fault? And more importantly, what does this lawsuit say for the Senate, which is already facing a great deal of frustration from Canadians? I want to bring into the show Michael Tobe, who is a former speechwriter for Prime Minister Stephen Harper and also a stellar political commentator and columnist. Michael Tobe, good to talk to you again, sir. Thanks so much for joining me today. 
Oh, my pleasure, Andrew. So let's start with the the basics here. This isn't coming from a, a legal perspective, but rather a, a political communications perspective. When mm-hmm. someone doesn't need to run for election, they don't seem to really need to worry about public opinion in this case, because I doubt an MP would ever get away with something like this. Yeah, no, an MP would never get away with something like this at all. The, the trick is that here, whether you like what Mike Duffy did or didn't do, depending on what your feelings were about the entire case and the whole $90,000 check that was either given as a gift by Nigel Wright, then the chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, my old friend and boss, or whether you believe that it was some sort of a way to just sort of get rid of a problem that he was facing. It depends. Um, unfortunately, what's happened here is, and I think this sort of relates a little bit back to the whole Omar Cotter case in the sense that there was a major settlement for Mr. Cotter on a completely separate matter. I mean, we can't compare these two cases. That was well over 10 million Canadian. So my guess is what's happened here is that Mr. Duffy and his legal team have decided to take a gamble and believe that the um, that the Liberal government is ready to fold on something like this, that they don't want to face a major lawsuit, that they don't want to get involved in a multi-year matter once again on an issue that many Canadians are aware of and probably tire of. So they're doing a, a typical legal tactic, which is to start up high with a huge number. I mean, the number of millions of dollars that Mike Duffy is calling for, he will never get. There's not a chance or a hope that he's going to get anything close to this. But they're going to obviously settle for something very low, and they're hoping that that low is a lot of money, that being all the money that he lost during the time of his problems in the Senate, plus then some. I mean, the problem really here, though, Andrew, is that some of the tactics they're using, you know, the pain and suffering that Mike Duffy had during the time that he was struggling with the federal government and that whole discussion of the $90,000 check, I just don't think it jibes with most Canadians, no matter if they feel Mr. Duffy is in the right or in the wrong in this case. But you're right. Would a local MP or, or any sort of an MP, cabinet minister, anybody, would they ever get away with this? Not a chance. But when it comes to Mike Duffy, and unfortunately we sort of know what he's like based on his broadcast days and his you know terrible political days, maybe this is sort of part and parcel with the way that Mike Duffy and others sort of think and feel around him. I think that's valid, and I also think you're very shrewd to start severing here the income and benefits side of his lawsuit and the general damages, which is more the woe-is-me side, because it seems like he does have a legitimate claim on the pay and benefits side, because his pay and benefits were withheld for two years. They were restored, but he was never reimbursed for the salary, living expenses, and pension accruals that were withheld when he was suspended. And and if, and again, in the eyes of the rules, in the eyes of the law, he was found not guilty for those, I think that he should be given those things. Now, that doesn't mean I agree with what he did that got him in trouble in the first place, but again, that's something where, you know, if I was suspended from my place of employment for six months and then it was proven on the other end that I didn't actually do the thing that got me suspended, I would like to believe that I'd get that money back. That's how it is with law enforcement. That's how it is with teaching. I think he has a legitimate claim here, and I wonder if the Senate could have avoided this lawsuit had they ceded that ground. Yes, and look, I think that he has a legitimate case for the several hundred thousand dollars that he lost during those two years. I don't agree with the way Mr. Duffy handled himself, and I think that the whole matter was handled poorly on all sides, even though I actually still, to this day, I still do believe, believe it or not, and I'm sure some listeners will be find a little baffling, I've known Nigel Wright for many, many years. He just is a good, decent, honest person, and he is kind to his friends and others when he sees them in trouble and need, and This may have been just a simple case that he felt he was going to try and get rid of Mr. Duffy's troubles by giving him the check as a gift and letting it go, and unfortunately just explode into a terrible mess. Obviously, other Canadians feel differently, and that's fine. But yes, I mean, I think that base amount he is certainly entitled to because, as you said, he was found not guilty. And if that's the case, then he should be reimbursed every penny that was taken away from him during his two-year suspension. But everything else becomes very puzzling to me, and I think it's puzzling to most Canadians. I don't think that the quote-unquote pain and suffering he felt over the two years, even though it was obviously financially very stressful for him, and apparently has been stressful for him, according to most reports, for many years, I don't think that equates to millions upon millions of dollars. And that's why I said that I think that they're just hoping to, they're aiming high and they're going to settle low. And whatever the low is, 
is an interesting question. I mean, I don't know what Justin Trudeau's liberals are going to do in this case. I don't know if they want to fight it out. I don't know if they want to try to ignore it for as long as they possibly can and just sort of let it fester for a while. But at some point in time, the Canadian government is going to have to defend itself against this, these allegations, and I don't know what they really want to do. If it's the Omar Cotter case all over again, they're going to fold like a house of cards really, really quickly, and God knows how much the Canadian taxpayers, because we're the ones who pay this settlement, yeah. not anybody else. It's us are going to be paying out for them. I mean, we're not going to necessarily feel it in our pocketbook that very second, but again, it'll be yet another case and another precedent where we're paying out people. But if we don't and we fight it out, God knows what the tab's going to be at the end of this. So no matter which way it goes, it's going to be awful for the Canadian taxpayer in general. I have to wonder if Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are reconsidering their view of Nigel Wright covering costs right now. Because I, I feel Justin Trudeau might be looking at, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe Nigel, we can get him to cut another check here. <laughs> I don't think Nigel's going to do that. I can't speak for him. He can speak for himself, obviously. Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure he'd be on board with your characterization there. Uh, but I, I do have to ask, because the Senate has been trying desperately in the last couple of years, I don't want to say to reinvent itself, because yeah. by, by design it's not really in a position to do that, but senators have really been trying to be a lot more forward-facing. I know on the conservative yeah. side, Senator yeah. Linda Frum and Senator Denise Batters have done a lot to try to demystify the work the Senate does in committees. Mm -hmm. I know on the liberal side, Senator Andre Pratt ha has done and very yep. similar things there. Yes, he has. This is a huge blow to that cause of the Senate really trying to reassert its relevance. Yes, absolutely. Look, unfortunately, the Senate has had a lot of trouble, as we know, and there have been a, a ton of issues with, um, with Mike Duffy, with Pamela Wallen, with Patrick Brezzo, with Mac Harb. Colin Kenny, another one. Colin Kenny, yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, the list just goes on and on. And you're right, there have been a lot of senators who have been uh, doing bad things, shall we say, overall, or at least doing things that if you put an average Canadian in his or her position, they wouldn't do the same thing. And I understand that. Um, yes, and I think it does hurt the good work that Linda from Denise Batters, Andre Pratt is certainly a good example, and others are doing because there are many good senators. I know this is hard for people sometimes to fathom <laughs> yeah. politics. But there are good people in politics. Trust me, they really do exist. But unfortunately, there are always going to be a few bad apples in the cart, and it ruins it for everybody else. But yes, I certainly think that there are a lot of senators who want to ensure that the Senate continues to work as a you know, second sober thought, that it works hard to ensure that we have good legislation in this country, no matter who is in power, be it the Tories, the Liberals, or if one day someone, another party comes in, it will be that group. Irrespective of that, you're right. Mike Duffy is going to serve as a distraction to the work that the Senate does and the good work that they do in a lot of pieces of legislation, private members' bills, etc. And for that reason, it's very, very unfortunate. But on the other hand, I think that the best thing for from Batters and, uh, and Pratt and others to do is to keep working hard, to keep ensuring that the Senate is focused on the main task of being relevant and doing relevant things and let the sideshow known as the Mike Duffy trial sort of deal with itself, and it'll just be on the side. It'll be something they'll have to comment about once in a while. But nevertheless, I think that overall the Senate is at least now more focused than it was before. It wants to be more transparent. It wants to reform itself. Those are good things. You know, Mike Duffy, unfortunately, just has to be dealt with. You know, there was a, a, certainly a sense in the Mike Duffy trial that the problem was that he didn't break the rules because the rules themselves are, are vague and bad. Has yep. the Senate done anything or, in your view, anything substantive to really change some of those rules since? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, that was one of the things that Mike Duffy and his legal team or his main lawyer argued for a long period of time is that the rules were not clear. I mean, I and others took a look at it, and I would have to certainly agree to some extent because it wasn't clear a lot of these things when it comes to primary residence, how you spend certain money, even though gifts were actually covered. Like gifts, uh, you know, for, for MPs and others are not supposed to exceed, if I recall correctly, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, $300. Anything above that, you actually have to file a form and claim it if you want it, or you just have to reject it outright, which is the better way to do it. Um, I think that the Senate has certainly tried to plug some of these holes. And with the issue of Mike Duffy in per se, this has been kind of a unique matter in the sense that we're talking about $90,000, which isn't a great deal of money if we're talking about government spending, but on a personal level, it is actually a fair mm -hmm. amount. 
I think they're trying to ensure things like that don't happen. I wouldn't say necessarily that there's any legislation in place to fix it, but I believe that what they're trying to do is ensure that all of the various forms are signed properly, and they've actually, over the past couple of years, included new forms to ensure that people are using their money wisely, that if they have a primary residence, for example, they must declare it. You can't have, like Mac Harb, several that no one could sort of pick out. Well, which one is it exactly? I think that things need to be clearly defined as much as possible, and the Senate is certainly working towards that. But again, it's a work in progress. I think there's a long way to go. I believe that most Canadian senators, no matter their political allegiance, realize that. And I think they are now focused on the task of improving themselves and becoming more relevant. Because if they don't, Andrew, one day there's going to be someone who's going to say, maybe we should just wipe them out completely, yeah. as Stephen Harper sort of looked into for a period of time, whether it was possible, and it's, it's hard to do it might happen again if they just don't clean up their act. Yeah, very much agree with that assessment. Michael Tobe joining me on the line, former political speechwriter and now a Troy Media columnist and political commentator. Michael, always a pleasure. Enjoy your weekend, sir. You too. Take care. All right, cheers. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This one is bizarre. It's the epitome of a made-up controversy, if ever there was one. But by extension, it's now been given legitimacy by the federal government. And it involves a woman named Christine Douglas-Williams, who is a board member with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, but also a spectacular journalist and author in her own right, and one that I've had a number of interactions with in the past, all of which have been incredibly positive. She has a new book out called The Challenges of Modernizing Islam, Reformers Speak Out and the obstacles they face. She's also been a writer for a number of publications, including the Gatestone Institute and Jihad Watch, the latter of which seems to be attracting the ire of a number of activists in Canada that think she should be fired from the Race Relations Foundation board because she dares to speak out about the problems that radical Islam is having in influencing and motivating jihad across the Western world and jihad apologists here in Canada as well. And I wanted to cut through a lot of that and speak with the woman herself in question, Christine Douglas-Williams, who joins me on the line now. Christine, it's wonderful to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining me today. Andrew, thank you for having me on. Let, let's go back to the beginning here. This is not some controversy that's been unearthed. If you Google your name, your writings are, are quite proudly published under it. So why is it that this is only an issue now and your relationship with the Race Relations Foundation and your relationship with Jihad Watch both go back years? First of all, it's very interesting that you mentioned Google, because before this whole scandal broke, when I Googled my name, Christine Douglas-Williams, what came up were my, my, um, my writings for Jihad Watch, as well as, in fact, the first thing that came up on, on Google was actually my book, The Challenge of Modernizing Islam, which is very pro-Muslim, because I'm for human rights. This is something I stand up for. And the biggest query is, is her role with uh, the Canadian Race Relations Foundation consistent and is it um, a, a fit with the, uh, the writings for Jihad Watch? And, and I say it, it's certainly a fit, because the reason in the first place why I was even interested in becoming a board member with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation is because I stand against every form of bigotry, mm -hmm. every form of racism, and every form of ism that oppresses anybody, whether it be white supremacism, Islamic supremacism, and yes, black supremacism that has been shown with the Nation of Islam, in fact, any supremacism. So that is one reason, that was the reason, in fact, why I was even interested in the mandate of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation that says it stands against every form of bigotry. Now, Jihad Watch is a site that I know has elicited controversy. Major, a major part of that controversy was the fact that um, its, its director, um, Robert Spencer, was banned from Britain, and he um, did a display of the Muhammad cartoons in Texas. And the reason for that also was to say, look, as Westerners, we can stand up um, for our freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. So if a religion is offended, yes, we've seen Jesus um, immersed in urine. We've seen all kinds of insults against Christians and other faiths. So the point of that entire display was to demonstrate, look, Islam is not a superior religion under our democracy. It is an equal religion. It should be, it should be regarded as an equal religion in terms of how it's approached. And as so, if right on cue, that event was attacked. 
it was attacked. It was attacked by bullets, and, and it made front-page news everywhere because of this. So my writing for Jihad Watch has become a central issue. My approach is one of journalism with Jihad Watch. And what I, what I see is, look, we've got a major problem in the world today called Islamic supremacism. This definitely definitely does not mean all Muslims. In fact, as much as I, I, I end up fighting against those who are trying to malign me for writing for Jihad Watch, I'm in the same kinds of fighting for people who are saying, what are you doing trying to promote the cause of Muslims? This is a dark religion. This is a supremacist religion. This is against everything we stand for. And I say, look, not every Muslim is on the same page of that kind of theology. There is a huge group that is trying to reform Islam and they have existed from the beginning of Islam. In fact, the Quranist sect in Egypt is a reformist movement of which its, um, it, its leader, Dr. Sheikh Subi Mansour, has been working toward reforming Islam. He, is a, he was, in fact, a professor mm-hmm. at the Al-Azhar University, which mo- people who are into this realize this is where all Islamic jurisprudence is coming from, so it's a very prestigious university in, in, um, in Egypt. Now, he was a professor there. He fought against what he calls the soldiers of dictatorship with his reform movement. He was thrown out of Al-Azhar, persecuted, as well as those who are part of the Quranist sect, and he was subsequently exiled from Egypt by Mubarak, ended up in America, and was horrified to see that the same soldiers of dictatorship had arrived on American soil. So I, I get lambasted from both sides. Why are you supporting this movement? And on the other side, why are you going after Islamists? Which I continue to say, look, this is the biggest threat we face today, not just the numbers of people that are being violated in the name of Islam. Um, we look at Christian persecution, the Yazidi sex slaves. We look at the women that are being assaulted across Europe. We look at this horrible Muslim grooming gang situation going on now in the UK that was hush-hush because nobody wanted to make it look like we were being um, Islamophobic or against diversity. It is a crisis what we're facing, the jihadi attacks, the supremacism, the words of hate even being preached in mosques against Christians and Jews. And the refusal of so many people to tackle these issues. And, And this is where we get back into, and I want to talk about the reform side of this and your book very shortly, but I just I want to bring it back, if we can, to the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, because there's a, a section on the website that they put quite proudly that it's the leading organization dedicated to the elimination of racism and the promotion of harmonious race relations. Now, setting aside, for example, or for a moment, that Islam is not a race, even if we talk about relations between various groups and, and varying groups, what you're taking aim at and you're writing at Jihad Watch and Gatestone Institute is those who are under the banner of Islam not wanting to be harmonious with others. Those are the ones you're taking aim at. So how are people saying this is incompatible with your work for this foundation? What I see is that this is a situation that actually highlights a very huge problem that we're facing in the West, and it is a witch hunt against anybody who merely criticizes Islam. Now, John Robson of the National Post wrote an article along the lines of what you're saying. If you want to accuse someone of prejudice, use the right word. And in fact, what he highlights in his article in particular is this, is, is this hunt against me, where he indicates quite cleverly that, look, we've got somebody here that is with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation that is being attacked on a premise that she's being racist. But, but what he's saying is, look, this, this is a religion. This is not a race. So are we not allowed to um, uh, criticize some, some theology or some kind of a philosophy when it comes to the very approach of life? And this is, this is what he highlights here. But putting that aside, even giving my detractors the benefit of the doubt, which is what I've been doing, I say, look, if you want to expand the issue of Islam under the racism banner, then what you're doing, in essence, is saying that you're against forms of intolerance. And my view is, if you're going to be intolerant against anyone. It should be anyone. This is intolerance against, Mm -hmm. if it's Islam, if it's Christianity, if it's Judaism, it should all be equal. This is what our charter enshrines. This is how the West has evolved. Why is it that 
Islam in, 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 in the form of what Islamism is trying to project and, in fact, expand on. This word Islamophobia is a Trojan horse, and that is something I'd like to get back to you on in a bit. But my premise is, if you want to talk about intolerance, then talk about the intolerance of Islamic supremacism against unbelievers, its supremacy of what it enshrines against women, because men are above women, um, you see a lot of racism going on in the Islamic world against blacks, where blacks today are still being held slaves in areas like Mauritania and Sudan and elsewhere. But you do not hear the outcry against such atrocities committed in the name of Islamic supremacism. We are completely obsessed with any, any all indication or presence of white supremacism we are against, which we should be. But if we were to treat Islamic supremacism in the same way, we would not be having the big problem that we're having today. You know, one of the things that I find to be really interesting when we look at what's happening in Europe is you've had all over the, the countries in Scandinavia and Germany, especially Germany, you've had these gang rapes, these mass sexual assaults in areas where no-go zones do exist, where you have massive migration. It's a real problem that a lot of media and politicians don't want to tackle. And, and there was a piece that I actually learned about because you wrote about it for Jihad Watch, where a, a liberal MP in the UK had retweeted someone on Twitter, obviously, saying that abused girls in uh, one particular part of, of the UK need to, quote, shut their mouths for the good of diversity, unquote. Now, this was a, a parody account, but the Liberal MP retweets it, taking it seriously. And I find fascinating that idea of, you know, shut up for the good of diversity. That's what people that raise these issues like you are told quite regularly. You know, yeah, the, these might be concerns, whatever, but, you know, diversity, tolerance, these are the things we really need to talk about. What was so horrifying about this particular MP is that she is a Muslim herself who was married off at the age of 15. Wow. And she suffered incredible abuse under the system of Sharia law. And instead of standing up against it, in fact, she was actually um, showcased in, in the UK Independent of being the, the model of diversity and one who has come out from an era and a situation where she can speak about this and about the suffering that takes place because she's knowledgeable, which she should be by every indication, but apparently not. She comes forth now and she retweets um, telling these girls that were abused by these Muslim rape gangs to shut their mouths for the good of diversity. I mean, th this is what's more horrifying is that she feels that she can get away with it, with, uh, with reprieve. And rather than be dismissed, she was simply um, told to, well, you, you, you know, you re reprimand it. But really, she was not dealt with in the way she should be dealt with. I cannot imagine the ramifications if somebody spoke that way against the black population, against the Muslim population, against the Jewish population. Same thing happened in, in California, where a, a Muslim professor at the University of California came out and said, look, it is time for an intifada in America. This guy was openly calling for violence in America, and there has been no follow-up. The fact that people like this are getting away with saying these things, even in Canada, we have hate preachers coming out on Al-Quds Day, even preaching hate in mosques, but they are not being dealt with. Well, not just hate, but overt violence, overt violence they're preaching. It is overt violence, so why are they getting away with it? Who is allowed in Canada, in America, and in Europe to preach hate and violence against any group? What I stand for is mm -hmm. that we need to stand up for our constitution of human rights. People talk about Jihad Watch, the Milan Jihad Watch, but if, if, it was the, if it was the civil rights era, I would be writing for a publication then who highlights the abuses of that day. We need to stand up as a nation and as nations in the West to say, look, we are supposed to be supportive of those who are being victimized in the name of any kind of supremacy. We have girls, women, we have the worst people, the, the worst victimizations against innocents, including Muslims. And we are turning a blind eye for the sake, as this MP said in the UK, of diversity. We are afraid, and this is where the Islamophobia subterfuge comes in. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Christine Douglas-Williams, author of the book The Challenges of Modernizing Islam, Reformers Speak Out 
and the obstacles they face. Also a board member, for now anyway, with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Facing criticism, a spokesperson for the Heritage Minister shared the message here that they won't talk about specific cases but that if someone's work is at odds with the foundation's goals, then that will be taken into consideration by the government. Now, Christine, your term, as I understand it, is up next year. Do you expect, based on this, that you'll either be turf before then or that you just won't have your term renewed? All I can say is that there were efforts before um, this whole um, story broke um, to try to get me to quit. Um, I did not because I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to be sorry for because I care about white people. I care about Muslims. I care about Hindus. I care about Chinese. I care about everybody. I care about blacks. Mm -hmm. And I I did not see anything in that. And I'm not a person by nature that gets shoved out of a situation because the pressure is on. I stand up for human rights, and I can't see a bigger cause to stand up. Whether my job is going to be or appointment is going to be terminated, I don't know at this point. All I can say is that I received a personal letter of which I cannot reveal the contents of at this stage by um, the Heritage Minister Melanie Jolie before this broke, and it eventually led to this um, story in the media. When the Canadian press called me, they made it very clear that, look, they were going to run the story. They had information from the department. They intended to run the story, but they wanted to give me a fair hearing. I must admit at the time I was kind of doubtful. Should I give a statement? Should I not give a statement? Am I really going to be represented? But when I look at what that article was, they did give a hearing to the department, which was quite vague. Um, they gave a hearing to me, which I, I very much appreciated, but the, the person of real concern that they gave a hearing to was Almira Al-Gawabi, who is a representative with the National Council of Canadian Muslims, um, the former Care Can, mm-hmm. which is, um, as anybody can Google and anybody could know, it is connected to terrorism simply because it was found in the largest terrorism financing trial in the history of America, the Holy Land Foundation trial, to be connected to terrorism terrorism financing with Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. And now that was that was Care U.S. I just want to make that yes. concern yes, there. And, and I would encourage people to look it up themselves. I, I don't want to litigate that here. No, but no, I, definitely not. Definitely not. But Care Can, again, that could be done with research, is a derivative of Care. It is a derivative of Care. It's a subsidiary of Care USA. So this organization and the Muslim Association of Canada, I mean, if one looks that up, there is a, and this, again, is very controversial what I'm saying, but you look it up and they openly talk about being a proud um, organization that fashions itself after Hassan Albana, who is the, the founder of the Brotherhood. Of the Brotherhood. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, and so I would encourage people to, to really look at the organization's own words here. This is, I think, That's something that I'm people should on. do. I'm not, I'm not indicting anybody here. I, I'm talking about fact that is verifiable on the Internet. It sounds, it sounds absolutely beyond belief, but the mere fact that it sounds absolutely um, unbelievable is cause to look up and research for yourself. These are organizations that have been indicted as unindicted co-conspirators. We only have uh, about a minute left here, but I want to give you a chance, Christine. You, you say that you are pro-reform. What is it that you want people to take away from this book along that vein? I want people to take away this, and I've been getting a lot of lashback on this, that there are Muslims out there who very much ascribe to the Universal Declaration of Human Lo- um, Rights, our democracy. They're on our side. They're trying to... It, it is really a revolutionary group, if you want to look at it that way. They're trying to foster a modernity within their faith. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at a global... Uh, modernization, as well as on our soil. They reject the word Islamophobia because they realize it's an organization of Islamic cooperation concept that is really intended to shut down critics, which is very different from anti-Muslim bigotry, which I stand completely against. Good. And these individuals are on our side. They want to dialogue with, with, with other Muslims of the same mind, with Christians, with Jews, with Hindus. They're loving of democracy. They're peaceful Muslims, and they want to separate the Sharia law, the politicized of their religion from the personal faith belief. Got to take a, a, a break for news. Christine Douglas-Williams, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Andy. All right, all the best. And it's worth noting the NCCM does dispute that connection, but again, I encourage people to look things up for themselves in any case. Uh, Andrew Lawton in for Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about the money that you're shelling out to do anything. I mean, what are the expenses you have to deal with? And what are the most expensive ones? 
You've got to pay your taxes. You've got to pay your rent or your mortgage. You've got to pay for your electricity bill, which if you're in Ontario, good luck. You've got to pay for all of these different things. What would you say is the most expensive? Intuitively, I think you'd probably land on your housing costs. It's the biggest single check you shell out every month. But according to a new study, it's not the largest. Taxes are actually taking more of your money than housing, food, and clothing combined. Joining me on the line is Charles Lamam, who's the Director of Fiscal Studies at the Fraser Institute and co-author of this year's Canadian Consumer Tax Index. Charles, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure. So this is something that is counterintuitive for most people, which I think speaks to really the pervasiveness of taxation. I mean, it's not just one singular check you're shelling over at the beginning of every month. It's a whole bunch of checks, big and small, in all different areas. Yeah, that's right. And some of them are easy to discern, but some of them are more difficult. You know, you think of taxes, people think of what they're paying, you know, in payroll taxes and income taxes. It's right there on their paycheck. You know, it's on their income tax return. But taxes are much broader than that, uh, Andrew. Uh, we pay them to the to the federal government, the provincial governments and municipalities. And look, they total up a whole lot of money over the course of the year. When you add it all up, it comes to about 43 percent of the average family's income. So what we're talking about here is, is a substantial amount of money uh, that we pay in taxes. And it turns out that we're paying more in taxes than we are in basically everything else. Uh, taxes are double what we pay in housing costs each year, including our rent and mortgage payments. Uh, taxes are more than what we pay in not just housing, but also food and clothing all combined, which tally up 37% of our income. So we're talking about a substantial amount of money here. When you talk about the tax burden that falls on the average Canadian, are, are you addressing the federal, the provincial, the municipal? Are you getting all levels? We're getting all the taxes in, uh, that, that we pay throughout the course of the year. And the reason we do these calculations every single year, Andrew, is to remind Canadians of what the cost of government is. You know, it's very hard to make out a lot of these taxes, even something as simple as a sales tax. You know, we see that on our receipts on the things that we buy uh, on a daily basis. But how do you add those taxes up throughout the course of the year, it can be pretty difficult. You know, you think of uh, the fuel taxes you pay when you fill up at the pump, uh, the carbon taxes you pay when you're heating your home, the import tax that you pay on, you know, the, the clothing that you buy. So the, the alcohol tax, when you buy a bottle of wine, all these taxes are are, are difficult to discern, but there are taxes that the average family pays. And we think it's important to give Canadians a sense of what the cost of government is, Uh, for the typical family so that the typical family can then start thinking about, hey, at 43% of my income, I know taxes provide services, governments are doing things, but are they doing things in the best way? Are we getting the best value for our tax dollars? And really, that's the debate we should be having in Canada. Yeah, because I think that for the most part, people are willing to or people accept more broadly that there is a level that taxation is going to be acceptable at. And I know we're all going to frustrate and gripe about it, but I think most people understand that, yes, we get these basic services, whether it's infrastructure, education, we pay for them. But the question of value is one that's increasingly hard to track because the money is coming out of so many different areas. Whereas, you know, when you go to a store and you say, all right, I'm going to spend $55 on this, you can decide that value. Most Canadians don't really get that opportunity with taxes on that micro level or on a day-to-day level. I think you're absolutely right, and that's why we do these calculations. We're trying to arm Canadians with with the information they need uh, so that they can individually and their families decide if they're pleased with what they get back in return. You know, we all we all pay taxes, and I think we and we believe in taxes here uh, as Canadians, and we think that they they provide important services that we all cherish, uh, but. We cannot be lulled into thinking that if we pay higher taxes, that's going to mean uh, better services all the time. Governments, you know, they provide services, but sometimes money gets wasted. Sometimes they have programs that are not achieving their objective. Sometimes, you know, we have programs like healthcare, for example, where we all value uh, our, our public healthcare system. But when you measure Canada up against other countries that have universal healthcare, you know, we're spending a lot of money. Uh, in, in relation to the to these other countries, but we're we're getting middling to low uh, return on on the dollars that we uh, that we give government. In various comparisons uh, of our healthcare system, you know, we they find that we have you know weak access to doctors. It's typically hard to find a doctor in Canada. We don't have access to 
good technologies. It's hard to get an MRI, and we wait a very long yeah. time to get uh, to get surgery. So, you know, here's an example of one program that we all value and believe government should deliver, but we're not getting really the best bang for our buck. So then we can we can start having this conversation about how do we get better value for the tax dollars we send government. And when we talk about this idea of the tax burden outweighing the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, housing combined, it's important to note here that collectively between taxes and these basic necessities, we're looking at, I think it's about 80% that uh, your money is is already committed to. So every dollar that you're paid right. by your employer, 80% of it's going to these things. And that leaves 20% to go towards saving, investing, other discretionary expenditures, things that come up. And I think that the importance of that is that if government is able to maximize that number, that's how you really stimulate an economy, by people being able to save and spend. And and the more taxes are taking up that and the more other costs are, but taxes are ones the government control, the less that you're able to put into things that benefit not just your own finances, but that of your community. That's right. And taxes have grown, Andrew. It wasn't wasn't always this way. You know, back in the 60s, taxes consumed about 34% of the average Canadian family's income. And today that's 43%. So we've seen a steady growth in the tax bill. In fact, the tax bill for the average family has grown 21 times over since 1961, faster than our growth of income, faster than our expenditures on housing, food and and, uh, and, shell, and clothing. So there has been a steady growth in the tax bill. And you're absolutely right to point out that as more money goes to taxes uh, over time, we're going to have less money uh, to spend the way we would we choose to, because taxes are are a forced expenditure, yeah. and we're going to have less money available. Uh, my concern, Andrew, is if you're taking a kind of snapshot of what's happening with government policy right across Canada, there is a concern that we are going to see more and more of our money uh, go to taxes, and there's 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 many reasons for that. We have governments running uh, big deficits, and in, in other words, they're spending more than the tax revenues that allow. So these deficits are ultimately a deferred form of taxation that we're going to have to pay. Uh, future generations of Canadians are going to have to pay. We've got big tax hikes in the pipeline. Uh, the federal government has mandated a, a carbon tax uh, in all provinces. That's going to hit $50 per ton in, in, in a few years. We've got increasing payroll taxes coming from the expansion of the government-run Canada Pension Plan. Uh, so look, there, there's a real uh, risk that this the 43% that we're paying now could, ser- could grow uh, to a much larger uh, share of our income in the future. And I guess one other element I'd bring up here is that obviously provinces have their own tax rates and different municipalities have their own property tax rates. So obviously there, there's some variation across the country as to what your tax burden is. Yeah. But, but would you say that for the majority of Canadians, this sort of imbalance is true, that you're paying more on taxes than most other basic necessities? That's true. And, and look, so, you know, this is not what we cover in our most recent report, uh, but we do these calculations by province and, and we find there is variation. Absolutely, there's variation across Canada uh, in terms of the tax burden. Of course, it depends on which province and, and, and municipality that you live in. You know, a typical family in Alberta, for example, will be paying less total tax to government than a, t- a typical family in Quebec or Newfoundland, for example. So uh, Albertans are, are typically less taxed than, than these other provinces. And so if you're, you know, in Ontario, you're somewhere in between. Uh, you're closer to the average for the uh, for the uh, average Canadian family across the country. But certainly there's variation. Um, but, you know, we're seeing we're seeing the the, the trend in, in, in Alberta go towards a higher tax burn. Meanwhile, what we're seeing in, in, in high tax Quebec, they're actually going the other way. There's, that government is starting to, to better manage its finances, get their debt under control, and they're starting to provide tax relief, believe it or not. So, you know, there is, there is a, a changing of the guard happening as we speak right across the country. So I guess the big question is, what do you hope that information that this you that you've put forward here, what do you hope that really results in? Is it just about demystifying to Canadians with all these different areas of taxation how much they're paying, or is that just one piece of the puzzle here? Well, I think it's the first and most important piece. I mean, look, if you want to talk about how much we pay in taxes, you have to have a complete understanding of all the taxes you pay. And I think there's there's typically a, a temptation to focus on just the taxes that we're familiar with, the income and payroll taxes that we get taken off of our paycheck. Our paycheck. So we have to have that that complete sense 
to, to know how much we're paying to government each year, to get a sense of what the cost of government is. And that's really the first step, Andrew. That's really that's step one in a, in a longer process of uh, talking about what we get in return. Because nobody, so I'm certainly not making the case that, uh, you know, we should be an anti-tax civilization. We believe, I believe in taxes. They, you know, we need governments to do things. The question, though, is at 43% of our income, what do we get in return? Are we happy with the way governments are spending our money? Do you, is there opportunities for governments to do what we want them to do, but at a lower tax dollar? That's the kind of discussion I think we need to have. But you can't have discussions about value for money until you know what you pay. And that's why each and every year we want to remind Canadians of what the total uh, cost of government is. It's currently now 43% of uh, our income and likely going up in the future. Yeah, I think that is an important mission indeed. I'm joined on the line right now by Charles Lamam, the Director of Fiscal Studies for the Fraser Institute and also co-author of the Canadian Consumer Tax Index, this year's edition available at FraserInstitute.org. Thanks so much for your time, Charles. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Andrew. All right, cheers. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.